Welcome to Music Business Mindset, a podcast where we're all about helping you grow personally and professionally as an artist by looking at the important things like mindset, mental health, along with the music business. My name is David Ryan Olson. I am super glad that you are here today. I have my good friend Chris Graham on today's episode. And boy, we have an episode for you all about mental health, personal growth, and learning how to build a business that is for you. Just as a quick note before we get in, we do get into some very, very heavy topics. So let's just go ahead and jump into our conversation today with Chris Graham. All righty. I'm here with the bald, beautiful, mustached, purple shirt wearing, stud of a man, Christopher J. Graham. How you doing, dude? Hey, brother. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. I was trying to channel my inner Brian Hood. No, I could do a better Brian Hood. I am here with my bald, beautiful... <laughs> Guest co so um okay no we're not gonna do that <laughs> I don't even know how to imitate Brian I should probably work on being able to do a good imitation of him let me <laughs> what's something that he's I don't even know how to do that <laughs> the joke here if you're not familiar with the six figure creative podcast is that I'm making fun of Chris's co host on that podcast right now <laughs> so go check out that podcast it's highly relatable to all the stuff that we talk about here on this podcast but. Well, thanks, bud. Let's jump in. Chris Graham, would love to know a little bit more about you. Why don't you just jump in and tell us your story? Oh, my. Well, first of all, I like being on other people's podcasts. This is really fun to not have to have any plan and to improvise the whole thing. (laughs) So me, I am a weird, very strange human. Originally, I was a singer-songwriter. I was a musician. I'd go out and play shows, and it was great when I was in my, my 20s, made Solid living, Eh, quasi-solid living, doing that. (laughs) It was very consistent. It just wasn't very much. Doing the traveling artist sort of a thing, playing at venues or... Yeah, and it was funny because I never wanted to be a traveling musician. I was like way against that. So I barely did it. So I would only travel for like really good high-paying shows. Like I never lost money (laughs) 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 on a show, which is stupid. That's why... I was not cut out for that life. So eventually I started producing other singer-songwriters. I took all my money from being a musician and sunk it into recording gear and started producing other people. And that was a lot of fun, but also I wasn't good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty bad at it. All the technical stuff was fine. Like I got all of that and it wasn't a problem at all. But trying to coach somebody through, hey, (laughs) you should try that again. I'm not a fan of how you just emoted your deepest, darkest feelings. So eventually I started goofing around with mastering only out of necessity. There were like clients that needed mastering. They'd run out of money. And so I would do it for them. And then eventually I started doing just mastering for people. And then I ended up building this business from it and the business exploded. And I was like, had a flair for building businesses. So me and a buddy were like, decided to start a business podcast for people in the recording industry. And then that ruined everything. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get too far into those weeds, you mentioned you're a mastering engineer. I know there's a lot of confusion around mastering among the artist world. And us as mastering engineers, a lot of confusion there too. True. (laughs) So (laughs) can you just clarify what mastering is? Yeah. So what we as mastering engineers tell people it is, is making their song ready for release It's interesting because the term mastering, I think, means different things to different mastering engineers. For me, when I am finishing a song, somebody, you know, mixes a song and sends it to me, and I am putting that final polish on it, I generally tend to shy away from using very much EQ at all. 
And a lot of mastering engineers would be like, then what are you even doing? And I'd, oh, I'm using compression to sculpt it the way that I want it to be sculpted, the way that I think it'll present at its best. And other mastering engineers are like, oh, I, I don't even compress. I only EQ. It's like a painting. If you have a painting, that painting should have a frame, maybe. And there's a lot of different types of frames, and some will suit the picture better in some environments than others. Figuring that out, I think, is a big part of mastering. Of like, how do I present this song the best? And you don't want someone to look at that framed picture and think, damn, that's a nice frame. That's not the goal. The goal of the frame is people feel it, but they don't notice it. Yeah, so I know there's a lot of confusion specifically between like what mixing is and what mastering is. I hear like kind of a run-on word, mixing and mastering a lot. Can you kind of explain maybe what the difference is there for someone who's never worked with an actual professional mastering engineer before? Yeah, so I would start by saying this. When you turn on Spotify... When you when you crank the the generator shaft, <laughs> when you tune into Spotify, what you're going to need to do is push the AM button first on the radio. <laughs> when you tune into any radio or whatever, you're watching a movie or you're listening to Spotify, virtually every song you've ever heard that was super popular was mixed by one person, meaning there's like a big board with a bunch of little twisty things and a bunch of little slidey things and they made some parts louder and some parts quieter and some parts sound bigger and some parts sound smaller. And that's mixing. But then after it was mixed, virtually every song you've ever heard that's been a hit was then sent to a second person, which is almost always a dude for some reason, which is bothersome to me. That's starting to change, but it really disturbed me. Like early in my career, I was like, I don't know if there's a single female in my industry. Yikes. (laughs) We need some collective therapy. So... It goes to the mastering engineer and the mastering engineer decides how loud that song will sound and basically glues the whole thing together. And this is weird because as a mastering engineer, your job is to look at the 10,000 foot view. And as a mix engineer, your job is probably more to look at like the 1,000 foot view. I don't even know if I agree with that, but that would be one way to explain. (laughs) There's a lot of people that expect it to be all like kind of in one thing and like, why would I pay for someone separate when I could just hire this guy? He says he'll do all of it right over here. Well, it's funny because the classic scenario, and I did this when I was first starting out. It's like you're trying to make a record with somebody and you're like, my God, I've spent all this money on gear and I can't afford even name brand (laughs) Coca-Cola. And (laughs) I am... Not sure what I'm going to do. Wait a minute. This guy, we're almost done with his record. I know. I'll vaguely explain mastering to him and then offer to do it for $400 (laughs) for his whole album or something like that. I'll make a little bit of extra money. And I think what's funny about that is, at least when you're working with like a smaller producer or something like that, where that starts to get dicey for the producer is all you have is your portfolio. And when you try to make an extra buck by not making the record sound as good as it could by sending it to somebody who does nothing but make records sound better all day long, I'm not pitching myself here at all. Truth be told, I don't do that much mastering anymore. I have so many other businesses I'm trying to keep up with that most of my mastering business is systemized. I do still master, but I don't master all of the songs that come out of my studio. I don't need to. My assistant is just as good, if actually she's probably better than I am, (laughs) but he uses my system and we're able to maintain super duper high levels of quality consistently. And we're not like making it up as we go. The quality of our work doesn't depend on how we feel that day. Okay, sweet. Yeah, thanks for that, man. Would love just to kind of keep going on your story. You got hit up 
to be on this business podcast. Yes, I got hit up to be on this business podcast and I was shocked. Like I wanted to collaborate with Brian, my co-host, on something. I knew like we are inevitably going to work together on some project. The first time we hung out, we just sat down for like two hours and showed each other our spreadsheets. (laughs) Nerds. And like, that's not a joke. Like we actually sat down on his couch next to each other, which is weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the two of us in his house right next to each other on a couch with laptops being like, this is how I track. I call it growth, growth. And it's really a measurement of how much your growth has grown. (laughs) All of this is true. These are things I said. And he's like, these are my KPIs. And so we're like going all into this. And I'm pointing out how my spreadsheets are automatic. They populate themselves, but he was still manually entering his data. And I I was like pitching this idea of, I call it a God spreadsheet. (laughs) And I love building these spreadsheets for businesses where it's like you log into the spreadsheet and all of the information that you need for the business is in one place, automatically updated. We're actually building a new one of these for my coaching business right now. Like literally right now, like Kyle is putting the finishing touches on it. And so like every day at 9 a.m., I'll get a text that will tell me, hey, in the last 30 days, you've made this much money. Next morning, in the last 30 days, you've made this much money. So basically, it gamifies my revenue so that I can look at my revenue and get excited about it working. And what was cool is I actually had a moment right before this podcast that reminded me a lot of when I started doing this podcast with Brian, I was really, really on the, I call it a scoreboard system. I was really on a scoreboard system for Chris Graham Mastering because I had one thing that I did. And then the podcast came along and ruined it because now I have like 17 things that I do and that's been challenging. But let me kind of go back here. So Brian and I sat down, we looked at all our spreadsheets, we had a blast and we were really late to go hang out with our buddies. And we got to hang out with our buddies. This is like for Summer Nam. And we walked in there like, yeah, where you guys been? We were joking around like, ha they're probably looking at spreadsheets or something. <laughs> and I was like, uh, <laughs> we were looking at spreadsheets. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing that we did. <laughs> like, so like immediately everybody in our mastermind friend group knew like Brian and I are destined to be buds. So he invited me to do this podcast. And I just said yes, because I just wanted to hang out with the guy and wanted to talk about nerd stuff. And I figured like, yeah, maybe someday if we keep doing this for a while, we'll have like 500 people that listen to us every once in a while. So like once a month, they'll tune in and listen to like two thirds of one episode. I thought we'd have 500 people like that. And no matter how many times I tell this story, I still don't believe it. But the podcast went viral. It was so weird. My inbox started blowing up. My DMs started blowing up. I'd go to like conferences and stuff and people would stop me. They would somehow recognize me from the podcast. I'd be like, uh. (laughs) And it's not a video podcast either. (laughs) And all these people started asking me for my advice on stuff. And again, like keep in mind, all I wanted to do was stay home with my family and make music and make like $40,000 a year. That was the goal. That was like, absolutely tops for me. I thought maybe someday, maybe I'd hit $50,000 a year, but I'd probably be like 45 and I'd be a genius by then. And the product of that would be, I'd make (laughs) $45,000. And so when this podcast took off, all these people started asking me for advice and they started wanting me to do business coaching with them. And we've done business coaching together. So this is weird. I'm like (laughs) explaining how all of this felt to me, but it was so odd because as a mastering engineer, my systems were so good that I was like regularly making over $1,000 an hour all the time, which isn't to say I worked eight hours a day. I think most people hear that in $1,000 an hour. Oh my God, 
he's making, no, I wasn't, not even close to $40,000 a week. Not even close. I never did $40,000 in a month. It was just a weird thing because these people started reaching out and they wanted business coaching. And Brian was like, you should do it. And it was so weird because this guy, Machine, who's kick-ass, like world-class metal producer and mix engineer, was like the first guy that like specifically pulled me aside and was like, I want you to be my business coach. And Brian was like, charge him 300 bucks an hour. And I was like, uh, I don't know. I've, one, I feel bad doing that. And two, I make more than that already. But I gave it a shot. And to my wild surprise, so many people wanted to do that. And I developed these friendships with a ton of people, you included, where I hang out with them and talk to them about their business and try to get them to say, mm, that's a good question. To me, that's a point. I scored a point in the business coaching game when I get someone to say that. Yeah, so it's just been this whole weird, okay, the podcast exploded, and then here's where it gets weird. So we hit a half a million downloads the day before COVID, and then I went home, and my wife and I got in an argument later that night, and she asked me to leave, and I had a seizure, and continued to have them. They started to become a regular occurrence, and you know, I was hanging out at my brother's house, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. COVID is now a thing. We've been declared a worldwide pandemic and like all this stuff is coming at me and like everything's closing down and I'm having seizures. And then eventually the seizures just turn into like, I would basically pass out, but I'm still conscious, but I can't move. It was terrifying. So I went to the hospital when these things just kept coming hard and hard and hard. And they diagnosed me with PTSD and like depression and anxiety and all the other things that happen if your PTSD gets out of control. So when I was in the hospital, there was a particular nurse that was like, do not, I like asked her like what books I could read about PTSD. And she was like, don't read anything about it. Don't do your own research at all because you might get triggered while learning about it. It's funny because on the one hand, that was actually really good advice. But on the other hand, I didn't take it. It was lucky that that was a good move, but it was a great move for me. So I read this book called The Body Keeps the Score and it explained repression, flashbacks, hypervigilance, the agitation, irritability, and hostility that are like literally the symptoms of PTSD. Agitation and hostility, irritation, self-destructive behavior, and hypervigilance. Those are the five symptoms of PTSD. And like, if you talk to my family, they would all be like, oh, really? Those are all symptoms? That's... <laughs> now they're like, whoa, yeah, of course dad has PTSD. Now that we know what PTSD is. <laughs> I get into therapy. And as I'm in therapy, I go to something called EMDR, which I learn about through this book, The Body Keeps the Score. Body Keeps the Score is the number one book on trauma and PTSD that's ever been written by like 50 million times. Like it's a landslide of a book. So I read this book and I learn about all these things. And I learned that EMDR is the best therapy you can get for PTSD. So I begin asking around if anyone knows an EMDR clinician and my yoga teacher does. And she recommends me to a friend of hers. So I get into therapy and I start to remember terrifying, terrifying shit about being a kid and a number of people doing things to me, adults doing things to me. And in particular, stuff that happened at church. I was a Catholic, I was an altar boy, altar server. And what happened, 99% of the PTSD came from this one priest in particular who I was like an altar server with him that day and was supposed to hang out with him after the service. And he had me like finish this goblet of wine in the church service, huge goblet of wine. And there were drugs in it. I started to feel pretty weird. This wasn't the first time this had happened either. I had been drugged before at this church and started to feel pretty weird. And all of a sudden this dude did the big R. And a little while later, I kind of came, got my wits around me enough to run. 
and I run and I'm in the church. I scream because I realize he's chasing me. And this lady shows up and helps me escape. And I never think about it ever again. There's a little more to the story, but that's basically it. So in therapy, all of that comes out. I remember all of that stuff. And I'm like, oh my God. And as you can imagine, like it ain't pretty. I'm not pumped that I am this guy. And I end up going uh, to the police and I share with them everything I remember, drugging the big R, being chased, and this woman seeing it and saving me. And the cops go out and they find the woman and she corroborates my story on the record. And apparently that's not a thing. That's like not something you hear about happening, even though there's like thousands and thousands of these victims out there. It's 11,000 in America alone that have come forward. But man, there's so many more out there that haven't come forward. I had absolutely no idea I was one of these guys. So it's been this really weird experience to kind of process that. And as I've been looking at, okay, well, what's the right thing to do here? I need to pursue justice and try to like help kids that are in my shoes or adults that were in my shoes. And it turns out like I can't do anything in the state of Ohio. There's absolutely nothing I can do except try to change the laws because Ohio has the worst laws in the country when it comes to pedophiles. So if you're a pedophile priest looking for a state to live, Ohio, if you make a list of all the benefits of each of the states, Ohio is going to be damn near the top. So I'm going to change the laws. And what's been kind of cool about that is this totally embarrassing, awful thing that was the worst thing that ever happened to me is all of a sudden like my driver of everything that I want to do in life. I'm going to change the laws in Ohio. And the first thing I need to do to do that is to begin to make friends with people in government. So I've been doing that, been meeting with different elected officials and it's been a wild and crazy ride. And what I'm hoping to have happen is that a grand jury is called. Pennsylvania called a grand jury on this issue a couple of years ago. They found a thousand victims by doing the investigations. And Ohio has not done this yet. We have not had a massive let's clean house type of thing. And here's the cool thing. The Pope changed the laws for the Catholic Church for the first time in like 40 years. Massive sweeping changes. And these changes all generally, most of them revolve around like figure out who these priests are. We need to get them out of here because they're ruining the brand (laughs) big time. I don't say that to be cold. I think the Catholic brand means something. I think that the Catholic Church can have an enormously positive impact on the planet. And I'm super excited about Pope Francis is like, he's the man. He's awesome. So much cooler than any other Pope we've ever had. But the Catholic Church has to go down that road of truth and reconciliation. So I'm like, okay, cool. I just wanted to be a master engineer. Crap, I'm a business guy. Crap, I'm an activist. (laughs) So what do we do next? Yeah. Well, uh, first, I just want to say, well, like, thank you for sharing that. That's some heavy shit. That takes a lot of courage to talk about that. But two, I think that kind of brings up a very beautiful point that music has the power to do is like musicians aren't just someone who picks up a guitar for three hours in the evening and plays some songs and then gets drunk and passes out somewhere. Music gives people a platform to like have a voice on key issues. And even if you're in a room somewhere twisting knobs, the fact that that led to having a platform amongst other people in the industry and you can then use your voice for good. Just imagine what someone who's on a stage building a following can do. Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about that. I don't think anybody would disagree, but with COVID, we're all thinking about mental health right now. I heard a report that they did a poll and like one in four Americans had thought about suicide during COVID. That seems high. It seems really, really high. And suicide is the 
man, I mean, that's the ultimate mental health symptom right there. So I think we're in the process of a lot of movement right now. I think there's going to be a big social change where musicians and actors, we're already seeing this, are, are starting to use their platform. Freaking Deadpool. Ryan Reynolds recently like opened up and was like, hey, I struggle with anxiety. Ryan Reynolds, he doesn't seem like he struggles with anxiety. Like, yowza. Freaking Elon Musk hosted Saturday Night Live and was like, came out as having Asperger's. It's exciting because we're in a civil rights movement that's beginning with awareness about mental health. We have this weird thing where the news wants us to look at people and say, is it a good guy or a bad guy? And it's usually just a guy that needs better mental health, the good guy and the bad guy. You look at so many great movies, like I love the Iron Man movies, but like Tony Stark definitely had mental health problems. No doubt about it. But so did all the villains. Thanos was actually benevolent. He like wanted to bless the universe. He wanted it to thrive. He just had really terrible methods. And I think that's where mental health gets so complicated for a lot of people. And I think we're just figuring this out as a society that mental health jacks up your priorities and it causes you to do bad things in the name of good reasons. Let's talk about that because I know mental health is often a driving force behind why musicians become musicians. I agree. I totally agree. Can you share a little bit about your journey and maybe how your experiences growing up led you to be in the music business? Well, it was pretty simple. My parents got divorced and my dad, we've reconciled. I love my dad. We have a great relationship, but things were rough there. After the abuse with these priests started, I was a very difficult child, a very, very difficult child, which isn't to say it was my fault that our family had a lot of problems. Or to say that it was my parents' fault. Just, it was a thing. Trauma ricochets. And we had all this incoming trauma that flowed through me and then flowed out into the family and then ricocheted around in a bunch of different ways. And one of the ways that trauma bounced around is my dad ended up moving out on my 13th birthday. And I got a guitar for my 13th birthday too. So what do you think I did to try to feel better? I just played that freaking guitar, man. And I played it and I played it and I played it and got good at it eventually good enough to make a living playing it. And I got into music full time because I felt better when I played music. So why wouldn't I do what I could do to play music as much as I possibly could? It was that simple. I was like, this feels good. Maybe I do it all day. Hmm. How do I get people to give me money? <laughs> one of my good friends, super cool guy, his kids are awesome, but one of them has a, a disease that he'll have the rest of his life. Without getting into a whole lot of detail, uh, there's a lot of expense incurred by this disorder that he has. So my friend has to have a job. He has to be employed because he needs really good health insurance for this to work. He has to make decisions around that. And for me, as a musician, I made career choices so that I could afford my medicine. And my medicine was to make music for at least three hours a day. But that was just the start. And then my tolerance built up. And then it was eight hours a day. And then eventually it was 10 hours a day. And then it was like, uh, you guys all go on spring break. I'm going to stay here and record a record by myself for spring break junior year. Oh, <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> it was the worst experience ever. I was so unhealthy, man. I was riddled, riddled with PTSD stuff, trying to push through it. Man, the story is kind of meandering all over the place, but having to push through work when I was struggling made me have to build systems. There was no other option. If I was going to grow any kind of businesses, I had to systemize so that I could minimize the amount of work that I had to do. And also so that I could not make mistakes when I wasn't having a good day. Yeah. 
So what are some of the things that you found in order to build systems or maybe systems isn't maybe necessarily the most accessible word for like a touring artist or something, but maybe routines or ways of doing things. Man, you're right. I've tricked someone into being my business coach, (laughs) 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 which is the best way to do it. And he is a way better business coach than I am. We were talking about this exact same thing the other day. And he was like, everything you're describing about coaching people with building systems is stupid. I'm building this giant coaching program, this giant course. Actually, I just came up with this right before the podcast. But what I'm thinking about calling it now is talking about systems in regard to time debt. Are you in time debt? You can't keep up. You've got this business. It's growing. It's making money. But like, you're not floating the way that you used to before. You are gradually sinking and you feel it. That's the time debt. Which every artist hits at some point. Yep. And the way to deal with that time debt is to begin to start to build automated systems to take pieces of your job and either simplify them or eliminate them or delegate them. So I'm building up this huge coaching program where I want creative entrepreneurs who are providing services to other people and who want to become more efficient so that they can make more money or take on more projects or actually see their family at night to be able to hang out with me and learn how to become a systems ninja. So that you can take all of your processes and simplify them enough to either eliminate them completely, do them much more quickly, or delegate them to somebody else. But I think what what that gets at the core of is everybody kind of has this notion that if you're going to be successful, no matter what industry you're in, whether you're a musician, whether you're in the studio, or you're working in finance or whatever, the only way to achieve success is to bust your back. And that's not true. Because I think if COVID has taught us anything is that (laughs) our priorities should not be destroying our our lives. We should build our businesses around what we want our life to look like in order to have a healthy life. And I think, you know, to bring this back around to musicians specifically, we all kind of have this like, you can't be a real musician unless you're playing 250 shows a year and you have no personal life and no friends and you're doing it by sheer willpower alone. You just got to like, you know, work harder, right? When that's like not necessarily true. There's a great illustration here. You know, the Olympics are on right now. I love the Olympics. And as a kid, I was obsessed with them. And I used to think about wanting to be an Olympic athlete. But it was never like, I want to run the 100 meter. I didn't want to be an Olympic athlete in a normal popular event. I wanted to find some niche event that I was cut out for. And I still might do that like someday, depending on what all goes down with business and justice and all that stuff. (laughs) I'm still totally open to be like, to find some weird sport and to just disassemble it to its basic principles and master it. Just like find an area where it's like, none of these people are looking at this right. They didn't read the manual and you're allowed to do this thing that nobody else is doing. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to use two examples from the Olympics. One is the high jump. There's a guy, I think his name was Bill Fosbury. And he did what's called the Fosbury flop. Back in the day with the high jump, you would run up to it and you'd sort of scissor kick your way over it. You'd stay vertical and just sort of jump as high as you can and then kick your legs over it. Bill Fosbury was like, I'm going to run up to it and then jump over it backwards. And you can imagine like him explaining this to somebody. Well, you know, I'm going to run up to it and do it backwards. I think I'll be able to get higher if I do it backwards. Like I'm going to jump backwards and then land on my ass. That's how I'm going to do it. Watch this, coach. It's going to work. And then surprisingly, 
the dude crushed it. And nobody jumps in any other style other than the Fosbury flop now. It was the weirdest thing ever. And he looked at it and disassembled it. And that's business. That is the application of creativity to a problem. And that's what we need to be doing in our businesses. And I think my second story, back to what you're saying about busting your back, is there was one sport that was really appealing to me, but was also, there's no way <laughs> like I would ever get into it. And it's the biathlon during the Winter Olympics. And so in the biathlon, you got a pair of skis on and you got a freaking rifle. And it's a race on skis, but then you have to shoot targets. And if you miss the targets, you get penalized and have to like do penalty laps. So if you go out in the biathlon and you go as fast as you possibly can and you get to the first target, you're going to be the first one there because everybody else is pacing themselves. And you're going to be like, <laughs> and you're going to completely miss the target. You're not going to be present enough to actually do the skill part of the endurance race properly. And that is business too. You have to have your systems down enough that you have paced yourself that when the time comes to crush it, that you crush it. And for a lot of people, they get to a point where they're exhausted, they're huffing and puffing, and an awesome opportunity comes up and they blow it. I did that. I had a band come to me when I was a producer that went on to win a Grammy and they coyly asked for a meeting and I didn't give it to them because I had too much going on in my life at the time. I had just had a baby, so I had kind of a good excuse. But I didn't have space. If they had come to me a few years later, under any circumstances, just because it was a friend of mine, I'm like, absolutely, dude, let's hang. And it's a weird thing. You, you have to be able to hit bullseyes and ski in order to make your business run well. Right. Well, I know like musicians are naturally more inclined to the creative side of things and less so to like the quote unquote businessy side of things like doing the finances and doing all the scheduling and all the emailing, which is where I think the importance of systems comes in. So what would be your advice in terms of like just kind of getting started on systems or to maybe put this in a more musician-y type lingo? I'm really excited to talk about this, especially because it'll be less work for James to edit. <laughs> I've been all over the place today. Sorry, James. But yeah, with the systems thing, what I am working on, what I think is really important is to have a system to build systems. That's what I want to have, is a system to help business owners become systems ninjas. Did I ask you what systems even means? Because that sounds like a scary word to me. That's a great question. And this guy that's been coaching me, he hates the word. It's not sexy. It's not sexy at all. It's not sexy at all. And I have to figure out a way to make systems sexy. And I haven't done it yet, but I'll do my best. So a system usually involves some type of automation and some type of human activity as well. And it's the symbiosis of two of them working together to accomplish a goal. Perfect example is Iron Man. Iron Man is an incredible system. It's a human being fully capable of making his own decisions and his own snap judgments, his own surprising creative strategy decisions, and a whole lot of other cool tools that are at his disposal to deal with whatever happens to come his way. I love in Avengers Endgame, Tony Stark has his new nanotech suit. The children of Thanos start to show up and <laughs> Iron Man like turns into like this parabolic crazy laser machine and just like decimates one of the children of Thanos and like Hulk is like, whoa, <laughs> is that a new one? Or, you know, there's this moment where Tony had a new tool at his disposal that was now appropriate to use and it made quick work of the bad guy. 
And it wasn't like he had to go and punch him or something like that. He just was like, system, activate, destroy, giant child of Thanos. And I think that's what system means. It's the thing that you build that allows you to operate at a significantly higher level. They're a multiplier. That's the simplest way to put it. Systems are a multiplier. Do you want to do twice the business you're doing this year? While working half the amount? Let me go into deeper depth on this. One of the guys I just worked with that I just helped build systems for has this unbelievable business that's going to break a million here soon in the last year. He's absolutely crushing it. He's doing amazing creative work for top-notch, world-famous talent. He was in a position where I could ask him a question, a hard question, and it was a scary answer. And that hard question was, what would you do if you had twice as many projects next year? And for a lot of people, a lot of creatives, they think about that question. Say twice as many people wanted to work with you. Your incoming leads, the number of people that you're closing and turning into sales doubles over the course of the next year. What will your life look like next year? Mm -hmm. Or let's say you play twice as many shows. Right. What would playing twice as many shows next year look like? And you start to really quickly distinguish, ooh, I mean, the money would be great, but that sounds awful. That sounds like a nervous breakdown waiting to happen. If you are building systems that make you more efficient as a creative if you can build enough systems, you might be able to work half the time. And if you can work half the time first, you can double your clients later. You can afford to do it. And then you just do the same thing again and again. That's what I did. I started out making maybe $40 an hour as a mastering engineer, which I thought was great, and found a way to make $80 an hour without sacrificing any quality, improving my quality, frankly. And then I found a way to make $160 an hour. And then I found a way to make whatever that number is, <laughs> 320 and it just kept working and I kept iterating and then I kept becoming more and more efficient. And it was fun too. What I did was I built a system snowball and a system snowball is building your systems in the right order. So to build a system, I have seven steps. I literally wrote these this morning. I've been thinking a lot about Dave Ramsey and his debt snowball, how he's helped so many people get out of debt. I want to help people get out of time debt. And I'm really excited about that. And I'm going to do it with a system snowball. And a system snowball, essentially is figure out what is the smallest, simplest system that will save you time, that then you can use that new free time to build your second system. And then you can use the time that that second system generates to build your third system, and so on and so forth. And if you build these in the right order like that, it builds momentum, and you don't have to shut down your shop for three weeks to retool. There are ways to do it incrementally if you do it in the right order. And so I've got my seven system steps Dave Ramsey has the baby steps. I have the baby system steps. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. I've been liberal in my borrowing of what you're doing here. But the first step here is you got to schedule time every week to work on your business, not for it. That's the most important thing. What might that look like for an artist, though? That might be on Wednesdays from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock that you do not do anything except work on systems. You sit down and you find a way to save yourself more time. That's the only function of that two hours. You are not allowed to do anything in that two hours for anybody else other than yourself. It's selfish time. I'm trying to make my business run better and I'm trying to make myself less stressed. And I know by building these systems, I'll have better mental health. You have less to do, less to think about, less to keep track of. It's a mental health exercise. So the second step, I love this one, is to build a minimum viable scoreboard to track your rolling 30-day revenue. So the problem with bookkeeping as we do it now is you're like, oh yeah, I'm uh, February wasn't quite as good as most of my months. I'm really bummed about that. It only has 28 days, bro. Of course it wasn't as good as your other months. <laughs> but this minimum viable scoreboard 
tracks your rolling revenue so that you can look at it every single day. And the way my system works, I get a text every morning at 9 a.m., which is when I like to go to work. It basically says, here's how much money you've made in the last 30 days. And that's up X percent from yesterday, or it's down X percent from yesterday. To look at that and to just immediately be like, oh, what do I need to do to raise this number higher without sacrificing quality? Now you can measure it. Now you have feedback from your system. And this happened to me this morning. We're rolling out one of these new scoreboard systems. I got the data back from it and I got a jolt. I got like a shot in my arm of pure business adrenaline. And it was like, I must grow business. <laughs> like, must become more efficient. <laughs> must find ways to serve people more by giving them things that will change their absolute life. Not the opposite, which was what we think of when we think of like Hollywood business. The entrepreneur is always the bad guy, right? He's trying to take from people. No, 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 no. It's completely the opposite of that. The way capitalism works, and I know like a lot of people are like, hey, he doesn't know what he's talking about because this is so enforced in our culture. The way capitalism works is he who provides the most value receives the most value almost 100% of the time. So case in point, who has provided the most value to planet Earth? Let's think of the top three people. They've changed the most lives on planet Earth. I'm thinking of the brown paper box that will get dropped off at my doorstep today <laughs> that will contain extremely inexpensive, very hard to find items that are perfect for me. Thanks, Jeff Bezos richest man on the planet. <laughs> hmm. Does Amazon provide value for you? Are there many companies that provide more value for you than Amazon? Not really. Apple's up there. Who else is up there? A hundred years from now, who are we going to look back and say, thank God for that guy. He really did humanity a solid. Elon. It's Elon all the way. Like multi-planetary species, electric vehicles, solar power, rocket ships, flamethrowers, tunnels underneath the cities. Freaking trains that travel at 800 miles an hour from city to city to minimize travel and to get rid of air pollution from airplanes. <laughs> I wonder where he ranks amongst the world's richest people. Pretty high because he's added value. And when you add systems to your business, you maximize your ability to add value to your customer, which inevitably will result in you making more money. This, becoming a systems ninja, is one of the dopest skills a human can possibly have. And this isn't a new thing. It's not like, wow, well, I didn't realize like systems were getting so popular. No, bro. The way humanity has become the dominant species on the planet, systems. A bow and arrow is the system. A toilet that takes your fecal matter, you don't even have to look at it if you don't want to. It just disappears and like doesn't even really smell. I mean, you think it smells, but like try doing it without the water in a small room and get back to me on that. It's an amazing system. It has brought us so far forward as a species. It's our superpower. Cheetahs run fast. Owls are real good at hunting. Dogs can smell stuff real good. We build systems. All of these things are our superpowers, but for some reason, creatives believe that systems remove creativity. They don't. They maximize it if they're well-built. They remove all the other stuff that actually does remove creativity. What's the thing that you hate the most in your business? And for some people, they might be like, gosh, chasing down invoices. There's an automated system for that called FreshBooks. Sends out your invoices, hooks up to your bank account. And if they haven't paid your invoices, FreshBooks automatically follows up with them again and again and again and again with pre-composed emails so that you don't have to worry about that. And it's not new tech either. That's like 10 years old. And there's still people that are like, God, I hate chasing invoices. That's because you have not scheduled time to work on your business to build systems. And if you are scheduling time to work on your business to build systems, 
you will start to learn about systems. You're going to find all these shortcuts. There's so many of them. And whenever you find a human that's like, well, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm about as good as you can get. Uh, Systems really can't handle me, frankly. Dude, it's ignorance. They don't know. It's not a lack of character. It's not that they're jerks. It's not that they're mean. They just don't know. In the same way that a lot of people were like, well, I'm not going to get COVID because I fill in the blank. There's no fill in the blank, bro. (laughs) You're either getting it or you're not. And you can't really do that much about it. But anyways, I am so freaking stoked about the prospect of helping a bunch of people build businesses that actually serve them. So I'm in this weird spot now where like, yeah, activist for changing the laws in Ohio. But in order to do that, I have to niche down in my businesses. And that means full commitment to systems coaching. Because here's the thing, full disclosure, I'm going to do a bunch of coaching. I'm going to get really, 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 really good at this. I'm going to help a bunch of people get really systemized. I'm going to hand them the Chris Graham diploma and have them film them talking about what an incredible transformation it was. Even just 10% more efficient is a transformation. I got 90% more efficient in my business. And that's not uncommon. How much more efficient do you think Henry Ford was after he built assembly lines? Insanely. And here's the thing. Cars were bespoke before. They were not assembled in a factory. They were like individual works of art that didn't even necessarily have interchangeable parts all the time. And I think for the systems thing, this vision of seeing people experience what I did with my business of like, whoa, I can breathe now. And my system is sharing the load and I don't have to do everything all by myself. And then now Because the system is sharing the load, it makes it so I can begin to delegate because the tasks that need delegated are now much, much more simple because the hard part's been automated. That's business right there. That's if you are in the service industry, the 10,000 foot view is mastery and then figuring out how to add automation to that and then figuring out how to delegate that and repeat. And you just go around your whole business. I call it mad, master, automate, delegate. You just do that again and again and again and again and again. And eventually, there's nothing left to do in your business and you can focus on other creative pursuits, which to me, that's the real payoff. Like I built all these systems, so now I have time to start a podcast with my friend. So I did. Oops, that side project became my main thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, but I think the takeaway from all of that for like a musician is like, okay, well, would you love to spend less time trying to schedule shows or trying to spend less time doing accounting or spend less time emailing different people to promote your stuff. You could spend less time on that by having, for instance, system of email templates. You don't have to write an email every single time. That's a system. And so that gives you the freedom to focus on having the mental bandwidth to play more shows or to write more stuff or go into the studio more or do your side projects that may eventually turn into your non-side projects. But to think that, oh, well, I'm a musician, so systems don't apply to me. That's a bunch of baloney. Everyone needs a way to do things so that your brain uses fewer calories than you have way more mental bandwidth. That's the number one complaint I hear from musicians. Dude, I just don't have time. Like, I'm in 500 different directions. I don't know what I'm doing. It takes me forever to switch gears. I don't know what I'm doing with X, Y, and Z. I got to like reinvent the wheel every single time. I hear that, man. The nice thing that we've got right now for musicians is that we just had a full system reset. Somebody held that power button down for 10 seconds, hardcore. (laughs) And the machine has restarted and we get to decide what normal is again. 
that's going to be a blessing to a lot of industries, an opportunity to pause and decide what normal is going to look like. To speak to musicians directly, the old business model, I'm going to communicate it in the most ridiculous way that I possibly can. The old business model was learn to make music, make cool songs, make cool songs with friends, put cool songs on internet, make t-shirts with words and stuff on them and sell them to people who like songs. Am I right, guys? Is that like over half of your revenue? (laughs) Yeah. There's a business model problem there. That's the stupidest business model I've ever heard in my life because it assumes that anyone that likes your songs will like your merch. I don't wear merch. Why would I want to go to the grocery store with a Dave Matthews band t-shirt on? If that's you, no offense. I don't feel the need to communicate to people what I like to complete strangers. That's a weird idea. So what else can we do as musicians to make money? And I think the answer is really, really simple. It's coaching. What would your fan pay the most money for? Time with you, especially if you're investing in them. The business model that all musicians should be doing, and a lot of them are, to be honest. I can never remember the freaking name, but there's this one band that I'm really into. It's like a math rock band. And the lead guitarist does guitar lessons with people. And she's a freak. I mean, she's like one of the best guitar players I've ever heard in my life. And people will pay her an exorbitant amount of money to have a one-hour guitar lesson while she's in the green room before she plays the show. I don't know what she charges, but it's a lot more than the other guitar teachers in town. A whole lot more. She's only got a couple hours to do it, and her super fans, I would seriously consider hiring her for a guitar lesson, which I would imagine would be at least 100 bucks, At least 100 bucks, which is a really expensive guitar lesson. So if she's doing that for three people, if she's got good writing on her shows, leave for tour, get to the show, do your sound check, do three lessons, make 300 bucks, play your show, maybe make money, maybe not. Go to the next town. If you can be working five days a week and making $300 a day doing the guitar lesson tour thing, that's not bad money, man. That's decent. You're way above the median, if I'm not mistaken. That's what, $6,000 a year, $72,000 a year just in guitar lessons. If you're playing three lessons a day, five days a week. Now that doesn't even get into doing this online, doing it over Zoom. Would someone pay 50 bucks to do a guitar lesson with their favorite guitarist? I'm really into jazz guitar. There's a guy, Julian Lage, who I'm obsessed with. I think he's one of the best guitarists alive right now. Apparently, if I had the time to do it right now, I could get on Zoom and I could pay Julian a small fortune to hang out with me for an hour and he'd teach me guitar. He can make most of his money doing that. Einstein. Do you know how Einstein funded his creative side projects? He taught school. Well, he's at a bunch of different schools, like a ton over the years. But that's how a lot of creatives fund their business is they teach. They teach what they have mastered because when you've mastered something, you're probably have a good opportunity to teach other people how to achieve mastery for a lot of money. But for some reason with musicians, there's like a class warfare system. It's like, oh man, if you're a guitar teacher, oh God. Right. Well, because most people, when they think of like teaching guitar lessons or whatever, they think of the old guy's house that you went to or the old piano teacher lady. With the ruler. Right. With the ruler. And it's like, okay, well, you're going to write me a $40 check for half an hour of my time. If you are doing your, your work properly and you're actually building like a brand and building relationships with your fans, they're going to pay for access to you. I would pay... Man, I don't even have a favorite guitar player, but let's just come up with one. Like Jimmy Page. If Jimmy Page was doing $500 guitar lessons. 30 minutes for $500, I would do it. I would absolutely do it. I don't care if it's 10 times as more expensive as the guy down the street. 
That guy's not Jimmy Page. Most people listening to this probably aren't Jimmy Page, although I would love it if someone could get Jimmy Page listening to this. But, you know, but like, I think that's the goal. Values perception. There is not a law that says guitar lessons must be this percentage above your local minimum wage and blah, 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 blah. No, there are no rules. So I I think this kind of goes hand in hand with something I've been preaching on this podcast for a while called David's Hierarchy of Leads. Ooh. <laughs> Just as a recap for this is like there are four levels of fandom. First level is your non-fans. Don't know you or don't like you. Beyond that, you got casual fans. And these are the people that are like, fine, if your song comes on, maybe if their friends are going to the show, they'll drag you along or something. But, you know, really not invested. Beyond that, you have true fans. And these are the people that are going to seek out your music, put you on playlists, follow you on stuff and actually like, you know, like and comment on your stuff. They're willing to buy tickets. They're willing to buy merch. They're willing to support you on Patreon. And then beyond that, you have super fans. And these these are the most obsessed of the obsessed. And they're willing to do anything for you. And they're willing to pay exuberant amounts of money for access to you, whether it's, you know, a, a lesson like that, or whether it's a stupid fundraising gala when you're coming into town. They may even be giving you 50 bucks a month. They may also donate to your Kickstarter for your new album or something. So stop thinking about all of your fans as a monolithic block. Think about the way that your fans can actually be divided and give people at each level something more for the people who want more. David's hierarchy of leads. Yeah, that's awesome, man. There's a lot of opportunity right now. And I think musicians, creatives, everybody, I don't think it's really clicked for us as a community that like the reset button just got hit and we get to make it all up from scratch right now. You get to redefine what you're doing, how you're doing it, how you're monetizing it. Here's what I'll say. There is no industry best practice in all but a couple industries right now. This is like a post-World War II type scenario. Everything is restarting and we're going to see a lot of growth over the next couple of years because when you restart something, you do it with more wisdom and you do it more intelligently. And sometimes best practices don't work anymore. So case in point, like when I was in the third grade, we spent an exorbitant amount of time learning cursive. And we were told like, you have to have cursive as an adult. Everyone only writes in cursive. It's so much faster. And I remember being like, I don't know. I'm just like an eight-year-old kid, but I don't see it. We go to this thing called the computer lab and play this game called Oregon Trail. Like, and they're teaching us typing and like the computers get twice as fast every year. I don't know if cursive is going to be too much of a thing. Lo and behold, total waste of time. Total waste of time. The only thing you need to be able to write in cursive is your name. And there's a lot of stuff like that. Selling t-shirts to make a living off your band. I think a lot of fans, there's almost like a pity buy. I love this band and I want to support them. How can I... Su- oh, they want me to buy a t-shirt. Okay. I'll never wear it, but I'll buy it because I love you guys. You only made $3 once you paid for printing and the shirt itself? What? Your business model is freaking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, like that's a great point because if you go back and listen to episode 25 of this podcast, we had a band on called Lords of the Trident. They are the quote-unquote most metal band on earth. They are like the most niche. <laughs> and so they have 300 active Patreon subscribers giving anywhere between a dollar and $60 a month. Ty said this on that episode that they sent out a survey to their Patreon supporters and they said, if for some reason all of the perks of your membership went away tomorrow, would you still subscribe at the same tier? I believe over 70% of people said, 
yes, I would still pledge the same amount because I like you and I like having access to you. Right. Patreon is a perfect example of a great system. That thing is genius. It is a work of art. And we will look back on Patreon the same way we look back on like CD Baby. CD Baby changed the game in the early 2000s. Completely changed the game. Patreon's doing it again. So I guess just as we kind of wrap up here, what does being healthy with your creativity mean to you? Being healthy with your creativity is very complicated. Very complicated. Because for some people, if you don't make enough stuff, you don't make enough art, you will not be healthy. I'm that way. If I'm not making stuff, it's going to be rough. But if I'm making too much stuff, it will also be rough. Or if I'm making stuff for the wrong reason, stuff will be rough. So there's a purity there that's also tricky because the flip side of that purity coin is that for some people, me included, you'll get so focused on the purity, they'll be like, well, it's 1% of me is not doing this for the right reason, so I'm not going to do it at all. And I don't know how good of a path that is either. Part of me wonders, maybe you should still do it and not see it as making something that reflects who you are, but see it as you polishing your craft. See it as working on mastery. Podcasters are pretty good at this. We just talk, light edit, publish, right? Music in some genres is better at this. Jazz is like, well, it's going to be pretty much one take and then we're going to publish that. Metal is not like that at all. It is awfully tedious overdubbing. And I think for all of these things as a creative, you also have a frequency. You have to be making something every so often. For me as a creative, the best thing I ever did was get regular. Brian, when we started the podcast, was like, we have to release every Tuesday at 6 a.m. And I was like, whatever. <laughs> I didn't care at all. And I was like, you say that's important for growth, whatever, if that's what you want to do. But that was huge for me. Just that consistency of like getting in a position where you have to create, not just you create because you feel like it. Make a commitment and then begin to publish on the regular until you fail. And you will, but do it with grace. Learn from that creative work and leverage it into the next thing and get into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so everything I just said, you could pretty much just, just get into therapy. If you're a musician, you need to be in therapy. <laughs> it's funny, that answer I just gave is not a whole lot different than the answer I would have given you before I started to learn what was going on with my own mental health. But I think the ultimate thing that I'm the most interested in and that I recommend to the most people now is that the better your mental health is, the better your creativity will be. So just go get into therapy and eat right and exercise sometimes. All of those things add up to maximize your creativity. This whole like, well, I'm just going to decide to be creative and I'm going to try as hard as I can in the moment. That doesn't work unless you're in shape creatively. And that means a couple things. It means that you are in shape physically, emotionally, relationally. It means that you can be all in and not die a little as you create. You should be growing. It should feel good when you're doing it. If it doesn't, if it's miserable, you're not making it right or you're not doing the right thing or you just don't have systems and all of the crap that you have to do to do the thing is weighing you down and you are trying to swim with a bunch of freaking bowling balls in a backpack. Like to be a healthy creative, you just have to look at sustainability and sustainability is going to be mental health, physical health, emotional health, and I think systems health. If your systems aren't there, it's just going to be minutia and putting out fires and reactivity for the rest of your life. And nobody wants that. So I hope there's a revolution and I hope creatives all over the world in all different genres of creativity all pick up this banner of systems. They pick up this banner of systems and they begin to build out 
things that amplify their output. Dude, Chris Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was good talking with you, man. My pleasure. I apologize that I was all over the place. <laughs> but if, listener, if you're thinking he wasn't all over the place at all, then hats off to James, who did a great job editing <laughs> this string of non sequiturs. <laughs> yeah. Six-figure creative podcast, Chris Graham coaching. Yep. You need help building systems? Come on over to chrisgrahamcoaching.com and you will get a raise on your hourly. Awesome. Dude, thanks so much. So that's it for my conversation today with Chris Graham. Just real quick before we go, if you want to know more about the new music business model, about true fans, super fans, all of that fun stuff, would love for you to go sign up for our free workshop on the new music business model. We're going to give you a little bit of a crash course for success in 2021. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would really appreciate you just giving us a quick five-star review. It really helps more people find the show. But for now, that's it, and we'll see you next time.